glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Let's go and stand, if you would. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and thy tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Thank you. You may be seated. And I was reading after, um, I've been reading some after uh, M.R. Dehan, who's written on this. been reading some after Henry Morris. Men, these men have helped a great deal, trying just to get some, some help and instruction and some counsel in looking at some of these texts of Scripture. Um, I appreciate commentary. I don't lean on them very hard because they're just that. They're commentary, but I do appreciate good Bible commentary when they are available. And uh, so anyway, having said that, some of the things and the points to be made are some points well made by these men. I appreciate uh, other men who've studied the Word of God and can help in that regard. So I said last week when we start on the church at Ephesus, we're going to take the same basic outline and apply it to each of the seven churches because it's given to us. Each of the same, each of the churches is, is spoken to in a general manner. The Lord Jesus will give a characterization of himself and then he's going to give what he comprehends about the church and then he's going to give them some counsel and then he's going to give them some consolation. Those are our four points. The, the characterization of Christ, his compre- comprehension of the church he's dealing with, his counsel to the church, which is going to include some commandments and some reproof and instruction, and then he's going to give some consolation with each one. He'll say, he that hath an ear, let him hear. And he's going to make a promise to the overcomer. And we dealt with last week what overcoming is. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh this world. Amen. And so if you think, and if I get the idea, we have an Americanized idea of overcoming. We have a human, human idea of overcoming. Uh, tenacity, hard work, much endeavor. But the Bible says they overcome, we overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of our testimony, meaning what Christ has done for us and a faith that's in him enough so that we're willing to confess him with the mouth because we believe on him with the heart. That's overcoming. Amen. It's not faith in what we do. It is faith in what he has done. I've had a healthy dialogue this week with someone who does not view and believe the word of God as we would. They would claim to be a Christian, have a very different perspective. And uh, one of the discussions was over. Uh, the subject of Sabbath over the subject of whether or not, this is a man I've met in community, some of you would know who I'm talking about, uh, what that means to us. And uh, we, we look at it from this standpoint. In the Old Testament, you had to rest from your labor because you're laboring but not succeeding at keeping the law. Amen? In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, we labor from our rest. We begin by knowing salvation's work is done. Just like God finished creation on the sixth day and rested from his labor, meaning it was done, not because he was tired, but because it was complete, even so, Christ died on the cross, shed his blood, raised from the dead, and the work of our salvation is done. It's not something that we are trying to obtain. 
our profession of faith, the idea that we, the, through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and then it says, and they love not their lives unto the death, meaning they had faith in what Christ had done for them, confessed that before men to the point they were so convinced that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and his work is sufficient, his shed blood sufficient, they're willing to hold to him even uh, unto death. We'll see some of that kind of thinking referred to tonight. The church in Smyrna is one of, of only two churches who's not reproved uh, for some kind of sin or some something wrong in the church. The Lord never says, I have something or somewhat against thee. Uh, they are a suffering church as much as the church at Ephesus was a zealous church, zealous for the truth. The church at Smyrna was a suffering church. The only other church that's not re- reproved or called to repent. Two out, of, two out of the seven churches are not called to repent. It's the church at Smyrna who was suffering and the church at Philadelphia who was, who was laboring in, in and through an open door. And the, the subject of death is going to be here. And, the, and again, the reference to overcoming. And I think there's some interesting things said to the church at Smyrna. Some things that would do well for us to get a hold of. I mentioned sometime on Sunday, excuse me, maybe more than once, the subject of, of boldness and how we need boldness. And I'm encouraging you as a member of this church to make boldness a, par, a, a, a prayer request, a regular uh, faithful prayer request. Lord, would you please give me personally boldness to be loyal to you and loyal to the truth before men? Would you give us as a church boldness? If you study the early church, the first church, one of their primary prayer requests was for boldness, and the Lord gave it. Boldness is not rudeness. Boldness is, is standing for the truth in the face of danger, in the face of threatenings, uh, it is, in essence, boldness is courage manifest. <laughs> boldness is saying we're not going to back down from the truth. The opposite of boldness is being intimidated. So I know I ought to say something. I know that the Word of God has just been maligned, and I ought to say something, but if I do say something, I don't know what that person's going to think about or say about or do to me. Therefore, I refrain from saying and doing what I should out of fear of retribution from man. That's being intimidated. The word fear in 2 Timothy 1.7 is, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. That word fear means to be intimidated by others, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so here's a church in Smyrna that had every reason to be intimidated. They were not being threatened with lawsuits. They weren't being threatened with ridicule. They were being threatened with death. There were, there was, we'll read some of the things they were looking at and how the devil uh, was going to, going to give them some grief. And yet the Lord didn't say, change your methods. He said, fear not. And we'll see that's at the heart of this instruction tonight. So let's go ahead and begin in verse 8 at the characterization of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the same Christ, but he chooses to characterize himself to each church based upon that church's unique needs. So verse 8, And under the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first... And the last, which was dead and is alive. The Lord Jesus is referred to often as the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and it's the last. He is, he is the living word, and so he is the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, he is also the beginning and the end, and here he refers to himself as the first and the last. When it comes to, uh, he is the author and he's the finisher 
of our faith. And so this theme runs throughout Scripture. He's the creator, but he's also the king of kings. He is there in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. And he is there in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. But he's also there in Revelation 22.21. How many of us know what the last word of the Bible is? It's amen. You know what Jesus refers to himself as? I am the amen. He is the first and he is the last. He was around before mankind and he'll be around after this world. He was around before the world was created. He is around after. He's around before sin. He is around once sin is abolished and taken care of. He is the first and the last. The church at Smyrna needs to be reminded of this. There is a threat on their lives and their livelihood. I believe this, 2020 and COVID revealed a lot of problems present in Christianity in this country and around the world even. It revealed people's priorities. It revealed priorities. Some had quit church during COVID and will never return to attending church again. And what happened is COVID gave the out that was already desired and looked for. Many churches changed their structure during COVID to never return to it again. And I'm not here to ridicule them. I'm just saying it revealed a lot about us. One of the things that COVID revealed to me is how much fear... Uh, is used to control people and how humanity and how wicked people use fear. Every false religion is, 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 is controlled by fear and terror. Satan himself is called the king of terror. So we come to a church tonight that is under the threat of persecution, as we'll see, and not only under the threat, but the reality. And the Lord Jesus says, I want to remind you, first and foremost, who I am. I am the first and the last, we're reminded of a very similar truth in Hebrews chapter 12 uh, when, we, when we're told in uh, verse 1, um, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, that's referring back to Hebrews chapter 11, let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne on high. For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Let me encourage you if, you are, if you are dabbling with the idea of backing off on your devotion to Christ, on your obedience to Christ, on a life lived for Christ, I can guarantee you somewhere you shifted your focus from him to humanity, either yourself or to other people around you, or how people around you are treating you, what happens when we get discouraged with living a life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to Him. 9.9 times out of 10, we've gotten focused on how difficult it is. Most people say, it's just so hard. And much of that hardness is attached to people who are not for Christ. They're against Him, and so they contradict us. So the Lord, as with the church of Philadelphia, is calling the church of Smyrna into focusing on who He is. I am the first and the last. There's only one way he could be the first and the last. He was dead and is alive. He's reminding them, death does not have power over me. Christians tonight have no reason to fear death. But it's what Satan holds over us. Death of a relationship. We think death, we simply think of my body being being decapitated, someone shooting me. Those are fearful things. I get that. Uh, sometimes the manner of death is more scary than death itself. But the fact of the matter is, 
death being the cessation of some, some part of life or of life itself, we often fear death and the end of something, and that is used to manipulate us to twist our arm. The, the, the fear of death, the, the threat of death is used by our adversary to keep us from doing what we ought to do and being what we ought to be. And so the first thing the Lord reminds the church of is that I am someone who already conquered death. I'm the first and the last. I created, then I became the creation. As such, I died the death that other men die, but I am alive. I was dead, and I am alive. And I believe this. If you and I can get by faith a clear glimpse, and that's the only way to get a clear glimpse of Christ, it is conquering the fear of death that will embolden you. And the only thing that emboldens you and me as a Christian is getting a clear understanding of who Jesus Christ is. If you study the Lord Jesus Christ like a history lesson, you'll always speak of him as who he was. If you find yourself speaking of Jesus Christ as a historical figure, pray for revival in your heart. It's not about who he was. Who he was is who he is because he was dead and is alive. The Lord Jesus Christ was telling the church at Smyrna, I know what it's like to be persecuted. I know what it's like to be faced with the threat of death because I wasn't only faced with the threat, I was faced with the reality. I went into it and I came out of it and I'm speaking to you now as someone who has walked completely through what you are looking at. There's only one person you can consult with that can counsel you through death. Do I know somebody that were on the table and they revived them four times? Well, that's not complete death or they wouldn't be here today. I understand that technically and on the table you can be dead. I get that. I believe the Apostle Paul, when he says he was caught up in the third heaven, would have been technically dead. They pulled him out of Ephesus thinking that he was dead. But the Lord wasn't done with him, so he stood him back up and put him back out. Now, you and I can't talk to Lazarus today. He was dead and was alive, but he died again. The only person you and I can talk to that can counsel us about what death is like is our Lord and Savior. And if we would spend more time with him, I believe this, the more... We, the closer we get to Christ, the less hold death has on us. Amen? And so then, uh, the Lord Jesus is reminding them, uh, his, his characterization is, is, I'm the first and the last, he which was dead and is alive. Now he's going to get into their, his comprehension of them. Verse 9, as with pretty, every church, I know thy works. Now I do want to say this. We understand, I said this last week, works do not save. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. But he's not reached, he is not speaking to unsaved people, is he? No, he's speaking to saved people. And so if we think tonight, the Lord doesn't care about your works. And I mentioned this last week. The Lord, because he saves you by his grace, he doesn't care about your works. That's not true. It is our works that are going to be on trial at the judgment seat. And he knows our works. Notice he doesn't say, I know your intentions. Amen? Good intentions mean nothing. The Lord doesn't say, I know what you are planning to do. I catch, I've caught myself doing this, but I also hear people say, say, are you reading your Bible like you should? I'm trying. You know what that's saying? I'm not. But we can't just answer it straightforward, can we? No, I'm not. I've not been reading my Bible like I should. But if he were to speak, that's what he would say. What if you are reading your Bible like you should? What if you are faithfully spending time in God's word every day? Does he know that? 
And you're not earning a merit badge. I don't mean it that way. But know this. The Lord does know what we do because we love Him. Because we trust Him. Because we, 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 we do believe He's the Son of God. Faith does produce works. And what matters is He says, I know Thy works. And I see this spiritually so often. It's, it, how many of us know this? If you, if you, you didn't show up at work, okay, for five days, and your boss says, hey, what happened to you? And you said, I've been trying to get there. He said, well, I understand you're trying, but you haven't been here. Say, I understand, but I do expect a paycheck next week. He'd be like, what? You didn't work. Now, when it comes to serving Christ, the Bible says that the labor is worthy of his higher. Salvation's not a, a reward for labor, but crowns are. Uh, there are crowns for being faithful. Paul said, I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown. And so the fact of the matter is, I don't know why we many times, I do know because money is often not attached and spiritual concepts are harder for us to get a hold of than physical ones. We would never say, well, I've known some men. Are, have you got a job? I'm trying. No, go, go find work. There's work to be done. Amen. Uh, and I understand if you can't get hired in a job right away, but I remember, and you've met men, you say, are you getting a job? Well, I'm trying. Have you put in applications? Well, no, but I'm trying. What does that mean? I talked to a guy three weeks ago. Uh, you, you, you meet people there. I mean, there's no, there's no effort whatsoever, but spiritually, that's, that's rare. That's very rare to meet someone that physically would call their boss up and say, no, I'm not working, but I'm trying, and I'm sure that counts. Right? But we do this spiritually all the time. Are you praying? Oh, I try. No, we don't, or we would do. If you and I are saved, we can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth us. Our lack of production is a is an indicator, and I don't mean being productive like the world. I don't mean trying to churn out numbers. and I'm talking about just doing, therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is. Sin, James 4, 17. And so, on the, on the other side of that, the Lord doesn't say, I know not thy works. He says, I know thy works. And the point would be, he says this with every church. I know your works. I know what you're doing. I, I am aware of your labor. And so he is, he first begins to let them know, I am, I comprehend your toil, your labor for me. It's what he'd said about the church at Ephesus. I know thy works. And then he gets right into, he not only knew their toil, but he knew their trouble. He said, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. I want to say one other thing very quickly. I was talking to my wife about this, talked to Shalin about it, reading Proverbs 31 yesterday and comparing it with Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Proverbs 31 is the great chapter on the virtuous woman. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 give us much, and even chapter 2 of Proverbs information about the strange woman, the ungodly woman. It's amazing the contrast between those two women. And I'm going to make an application to churches because, yes, those texts are dealing with literal women and their character. But if you look at Revelation 17, there is a religious system there called the great whore. And so we must understand today religion is like those two women in Proverbs. You have virtuous woman churches and you have strange women churches. You have those that are true and belong to Christ and those that are not and that are immoral spiritually, that are spiritual adulteresses, if you would. 
The interesting to me, though, as you study that out, I noticed that in Proverbs 31, the Bible talks about her feet, talks about her hands, talks about her mouth. It talks about her apparel. It talks about her work. It talks about the fruit of her work. It talks about the praise she gets in the gates. It talks about all these things about her. But there is a theme that stands out that when it talks about her, how she uses her body, the thing that stands out is her hands. The virtuous woman, it mentions her hands seven or eight times, either her hands or her arms, and what she does with her hands. And when it comes to the strange woman, what do you think is the primary, uh, the primary member of her body that the Bible highlights that she uses to the destruction of men? Her mouth. And the primary tool she uses with her mouth is what, do we know? Flattery. You know what flattery is? Wow. Those have got to be the three prettiest girls I've ever seen in my life. I want something from them. So, boy, I'm just going to start buttering them up. And I'm going to start telling them whatever they want to hear that makes them go, we are so wonderful. Right? Now, let's compare that to religion today. There is church after church after church that tells us what we want to hear about ourselves, what we want to hear about the Christian life, what makes us feel good. And you say... I hear this preached on all the time, as, I don't know if you do all the time, but as you should. If a church is using the tongue, the mouth that's been given primarily to flatter the hearers, to tell them, you are really good at your core, you're wonderful people, we know that everybody just wants to please God if they just had the opportunity, all this kind of stuff, that strange woman religion. So what does this have to do with this church? The virtuous woman is not known by what she says. The Bible does reference her mouth. In her mouth is wisdom and the law of kindness. But in Proverbs 31, it mentions the woman's mouth one time. But it mentions her hands seven or eight times. You know what it's saying? She's known by her what she does. You know the first thing the Lord Jesus mentions about a church? Not the reputation, the works. The more and the longer I pastor, the more my heartbeat is the church is intended to prepare us to work. We'll work till Jesus comes. You know what I'm concerned about Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church? What are we doing in the service of the Lord? What are we doing in laboring in the harvest field? What are you doing about getting the gospel? How are you laboring in prayer? How are you laboring in your word? How are you laboring in giving? How are you laboring with the gifts God has given you? It doesn't really matter the, the reputation we have in the community. I want to have a good name in the community. Don't misunderstand me. I want every person in this community to know this is an honest church, a true church. But we're not out here to try to impress people and get them to like us. We'd use flattery if that's what we were doing. What we're doing is we're workers. We are laborers together with God. That's why one of the, the very first thing the Lord Jesus says about every one of these churches is, I know thy works. Because he left us here to use our hands in his work to sow his seed in his harvest field and reap his harvest till he come. And so I know that works, that's their toil. Then, as I begin to say, he knows their troubles. He says, and tribulation. This is not speaking of the great tribulation. This is speaking of tribulation in this world. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Sometimes persecution and tribulation are used interchangeably. Tribulation is simply tremendous, difficult, hard times. The tribulation that we'll find, the great tribulation is caused by God. The tribulation he's referring to is caused by man. So he knows their tribulation. He knows the difficult things they are going through, the, the pain. Tribulation has to do with pain being caused uh, through, through challenging or difficult or, or tumultuous times. 
And so he knew all about that. I know thy tribulation. And then he says, and poverty. Later, he'll, he'll tell the Laodicean church that they were rich, increased with goods, and in need of nothing, but really they were poor. He tells the church at Smyrna the opposite. He said, You're, you have poverty. Then he puts in parentheses, but thou art rich. Meaning in this world, they were, they were very poor. This is not a church most likely that had a permanent meeting place. This is not a church that had 17 buses in their parking lot. They were poor. This is not a church, likely this church couldn't pay their pastor's salary. All the things I just mentioned are wrong, but this church didn't have it. This is a church that's poverty stricken. You know, it tells me you don't have to have wealth to work. He said, I know thy works, even though you don't have any resources. If you and I will work for Christ, how many of us have a body tonight? We can work. Amen? We can work for the Lord. And so I know thy works and tribulation. And I just say this, tribulation did not stop them from working for the Lord. So I know that works, the tribulation, that was the, 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 the affliction. Uh, the dictionary tells us it's severe affliction, distress of life or vexations. Okay? And so it's the very thing Matthew 13 would tell us that people get offended at the word of God over, that when persecution or tribulation arises because of the word, because of our loyalty and acceptance of the word of God, there are people that will turn on us and take out their anger toward God on us because of our loyalty to his word. Many then turn away from the word of God in the face of tribulation, but not the folks at Smyrna. So he knew their tribulation and poverty. He says, but thou art rich. I'll read a couple of verses along those lines in just a minute. And he said, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. He's getting to the root of where some of this tribulation and out of the tribulation, we would understand that's where the poverty came from. When you're persecuted, poverty will follow. The church at Jerusalem became poverty-stricken after they were persecuted because many times the bread earner of the home is imprisoned or killed. And so then poverty ensues. And so this is the same here. But what's interesting is in the church at Ephesus, he said he commended them for trying those who said they were apostles and were not. Now he says there are those in Smyrna who say they're Jews and are not. Ironically, and I believe it was uh, Henry Morse that pointed this out. I'm sure others have as well. But if you study Roman Catholicism, they lay hold on both of those things. They claim to have the succession of the apostles, as would the LDS, as would a number of other wicked groups of people who claim to be Christian today. We have the succession of the apostleship meaning we have living apostles today who can correct the Bible if necessary, who can add to the Bible if necessary. And so we would understand that the, the Pope supposedly is the vicar of God and has been, there's been a succession of this apostle, uh, apostolic authority all the way from Peter, all the way to the current church that rests rest in the hand of the Pope. So he can claim to be an apostle, but he's not. The, the, uh, the, the LDS religion can claim to have apostles, but they do not. Isn't it amazing? 2,000 years later, there are groups still up to the same tricks. Apostleship has to do with authority. Claiming to be Jews and not being has to do with laying, trying to claim hold of the promises of God when you reject Jesus Christ. We understand as Gentiles, we're grafted into the promises of the Jewish nation through faith in Jesus Christ. And there are those who said they were Jews and they're not. You know what the Roman Catholic Church has today? A priesthood. Do you know what that is? There were those who said they were Jews and are not to say we have special access to God and we have special authority from God. The apostles had to do with authority, saying they were Jews and were not, had to do with saying we have access to God that you other people don't. This is directly connected to the Nicolaitan movement. 
You lowly people, you can't speak to God as do others, but we who are Jews and are part of the priesthood, we have special access to God and you do not. And when this church wasn't accepting this, it obviously caused them some tribulation. And so today, I told somebody yesterday in a conversation about the Bible, Roman Catholicism has never, and hear me well, has never been Christianity. Never. Constantine was not a Christian, and what he produced was not Christianity, and what came out of Rome was not a, a biblical church. It has never been Christianity. Have Christians got confused and tangled up in that? I assume so. But Roman Catholicism, don't ever say that Christianity was during the Crusades. It was not Christians persecuting Muslims. It was Catholics and Muslims, two false religions having war. But Roman Catholicism is not and has not been Christianity. Now, people get angry about that. But what we see Christianity in the Bible, look, how many of us understand there is not a priesthood outside of the individual believer? That's why one of the first things Jesus said is that through the blood of Christ, we've been made kings and priests unto God. Meaning, by the way, the church has not replaced Israel. There'll be another message for another time on that. Revelation will deal with that. The church has not replaced Israel. We're not Israel today. We're not. I understand the Bible talks about those who are of Abraham by faith, but that's not talking about replacing the nation of Israel. The fact of the matter is, when you're a Christian, you're not a Jew, you're not a Gentile, you're in Christ. And through Christ, the great high priest, we have direct access to God. And so it's very interesting how even then, you know who was giving the churches a hard time? Not the atheists of their day. The religious liars and deceivers of their day. Same is true today. When persecution arises, it generally arises from one so-called religion toward genuine believers. That's the way it happens. The same was true here. Those that said they were apostles and were not. Those that said they were Jews and were not. And he said, but actually, they are the synagogue of Satan. He uses an interesting terminology. Synagogues were associated with the Jewish religion. But he said, instead of being a synagogue for God, these false claiming Jews are are a house for the devil. Satan has a resting place for, for himself in these people who claim to be Jews, and they are not. And it doesn't even seem they were natural-born Jews. We've, we have it today, friends. We have people that say, uh, I'm a... I'm a uh, and by the way, a true Messianic Jew would be someone that's born with Jewish blood, meaning they're Jew by birth, but have become a believer in Christ. But I'd still rather call them a Jewish Christian than a Messianic Jew. <laughs> Amen? They're just a Christian. That's what they are. But someone who says today, I'm a Gentile, but I'm a Jew, is a liar. Unless you've converted back to Judaism. They say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, are you a Gentile or a Jew? Well, I'm a Gentile, but I am a, I, I am a Christian Jew, meaning we know we can only understand God if you speak Palaleo Hebrew. Have ever met anybody like that? I've met multiple people who said, you can't really understand the God, the God of the Bible. And they won't call him God. They call him Jehovah. And they say, we worship uh, the sun God because we meet on Sunday and all this stuff. And if you're not familiar with that, wonderful. But that's part of what this is talking about. People that claim to have a unique and special access to God because they are Jewish when they're not at all. Not by birth and, and no other way. And so and the Bible says it's blasphemy. They are, they are railing on God. They're calling God a liar in essence by saying this. And so he knows their works. He knows their toil. But he also knew their trouble. They had tribulation, extreme affliction in their life that brought poverty. But then he said, but you're rich. 
And let me give you a couple of verses very quickly. You're familiar with this. God does not see us as poor when we are spiritually rich. Luke chapter 12. God sees true riches as eternal things. Being rich toward God, Luke 12 says. Luke 12, 21. It's, it's the parable of the man who was not rich toward God. He laid up treasure for himself on earth, but ignored God and was not rich in faith, had no, no riches toward God. Luke 12, verse 20 says, But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose things shall those be which thou hast provided? This man who tore down his barns was going to build greater. Verse 21, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then if you would, James chapter 2, James chapter 2, and it's the same thing our Lord is talking about in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt nor thieves break through and steal. We lay up treasure in heaven by faith in the word of God. James chapter 2 verse 5 says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him but ye have despised the poor do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats there is something in us naturally that thinks someone who has great wealth in this life is doing something right and we have how many of us know there's a temptation to do that with people well they must be a person of high caliber character look at their wealth I mean, they must be good people. Look at their wealth. And we know that's not true, but we have a tendency to think that way. We do the same thing with churches. That church must be doing something wrong. They've been meeting now in a storefront for 20 years. Well, that may be because they're doing wrong. It may be. But there are churches in Africa who've been meeting under a tree, but they're better churches than ours. As far as riches in heaven... They win more souls than do we. They give out more of the Word of God than we do. They pray more than we do. You have churches in America where the average member hasn't fasted in 20 years. And you have churches in Africa that fast as a church family on a weekly basis. And you tell me who's richer toward God. Them without their windows or us with our fine windows, air conditioning, and padded chairs. Hmm? The Smyrna church maybe didn't have things as well off as the Laodicean, but they were wealthy and Laodicea was poor. One of the greatest curses to America is our wealth. You go study and work on the mission field and find the different attitudes between people who have little and those who have more than they need. Those who have more than they need haven't got the time of day for the Word of God. It's a, if it's free, it must be junk. <laughs> yeah, I've not had anybody thus far in the foreign lands I've traveled in, ever call the Bible by curse words. But I have here more than once. What's the difference? You say, well, the, the general attitude often has to do with our physical wealth. Here's a church that was the opposite of that. The Lord says, you're, I know your poverty. I think that should be consoling, by the way. He didn't ignore the fact that in this life they were poor like him. When he walked this earth, he was a man of great poverty. When Peter needed a coin to go pay some taxes, Jesus didn't stick his hand in his pocket and give it to him. He said, go catch a fish if you want a coin. (laughs) Most of the disciples didn't have spare change. We realize that. Now, I'm not saying poverty makes you spiritual, but what we would say is it doesn't make you unspiritual. Wealth, the Bible says gain is not godliness, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
So this church was rich. He knew their treasure. He knew their toil. He knew their trouble, but he knew their treasure. He said, yes, you have trouble in this life. Yes, you are poor, but you're actually rich because of their great faith in him. Now, that deals with his comprehension of them in verse 9, verse 10. Uh, he begins to give them counsel. The first thing he says, so he says, I know thy tribulation, thy works, thy tribulation, poverty. When he begins to give them counsel, his first commandment is fear. None of those things, excuse me, which thou shalt suffer. I find this. He doesn't say, fear not, you won't suffer. He doesn't say, fear not, I'll take your suffering away. He says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. I just want to preach here for just a few minutes, and we'll wrap up as quickly as we can. In your Christian life, God's going to bring you to some points where you have a greater understanding of what it means to be a Christian. When you first got saved, you weren't a Christian. You and I were heathens. That's why we needed saved. We may have been raised in a Christian home, and you had to submit to God for salvation. He said, you're unsaved because of your sin, and this is the only way I'm going to take, your sins can be taken away. You must put your trust in my son, Jesus Christ. You know what salvation is? It's a submission. It's saying, God, I know you're right. I know I'm not fit, and I cannot make myself fit for to, to be part of your family, to go to heaven. I'm a sinner. I, I agree with you and believe that Jesus Christ is your only begotten son, and I, and I agree with you that only he can save me. I cannot save myself. And we submit to God for salvation. Then there comes a point where God says, now that you're mine, (laughs) before I saved you, you were living this way. But now that you're mine, my children don't live like you used to. My children don't lie. My children don't use my name in vain. My children don't cheat. My children don't think those kind of thoughts. Those are part of your old life. Now, I want to change you. I've saved you. You're no longer on your way to hell. That's taken care of. Your sins are forgiven. But because you're mine, I want you to be like me. I want you to be holy. Boy, there's a wrestling match. But I'm used to this. <laughs> My friends are used to this. I'm, I get pleasure. I used to get pleasure out of this. And God says, but I want to change you. I have changed your nature. Now I want to change your behavior. Yes? It's called sanctification. And we have to submit to God's sanctifying work in our lives. And it doesn't just end all one day. But there's an initial point where you realize, because I'm saved, I need my life changed. I'm not what I'm supposed to be. And we submit. And God says, now I want you to serve me. <laughs> You've been using all your time to pursue your hobbies and this and that, but I actually want you to spend your time in my word. I want you to spend your time in some prayer. I want you to spend your time around God's people. You've been still spending time around the old people, and I not only want you to spend time there, I want you to spend time giving out my word. I want you to spend your time persuading others to trust me. I want you to spend your time praying for others to go forward in obedience to me. I want you to spend your time ministering my word to other believers, and we submit to service. These are all Bible things. And many times that all happens at one time. Don't misunderstand. You can get, you can submit to salvation, sanctification, service all on the same day. But there's another aspect of Christian living that is as much a part of being a Christian as God having to save you before you can become one. Once you are saved, need to be sanctified. Once you're saved, Him calling you into service. Every Christian is called to suffer. It is as much a part of the Christian life as any other. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution. How? Why? What is it in us? When I'm preaching this right now, what emotion does it stir in you when I say every Christian has to suffer? Can we be honest tonight? It's fear. You know why? Who wants to suffer? 
I think it does us well to get real honest about this. There are some things perhaps God has been leading you to do as far as sanctification and service, but you know what, what we pull back? We know that the sanctification and service will include suffering. It may just be suffering ridicule. That is a form of suffering. It is. For some people, they'd rather be smacked in the face than be ridiculed. That's just the truth. But all Christianity will have suffering attached. You know what the church of Smyrna had done? They had submitted to suffering, and the Lord Jesus didn't say, I'll take your suffering away. He says, you're going to suffer. And in fact, he's going to tell them exactly what they're going to suffer. He says, but don't fear it. Don't fear the suffering. Isn't that an amazing statement? Isn't it natural to fear suffering? But we're not living natural lives. We're living spiritual lives. Is it possible to know you're going to suffer and not fear it? I want you to ponder much what I'm saying to you tonight. Friends, this is the heart of Christianity right here. Is it possible to know you're going to suffer and not fear it? Yes. If I obey the Lord, I've got some family that will never speak to me again. If I obey the Lord in this area, I could lose my job. If I obey the Lord in this area, we may have to move out of our house. I mean, if I tell the truth, yada, yada, yada. Because a lot of times we design our lives to prevent suffering but it comes to a point where we know what the Lord wants and we know people that don't love him what they want. We say, but if I do what he wants, they will make me pay because they don't like what he wants. That's part of being a Christian. And the Lord says, it just so stands out to me and this to me is the heart of the whole message. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. You're going to suffer. You need to submit to that. But I'm commanding you, don't be afraid of them. Behold, here's he's going to tell them. He gives them a precaution. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. What? But I'm not supposed to fear that? That's what he said. He's going to cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death. And I will give thee a crown of life. My understanding is the church of Smyrna would have its own martyrs, according to history. But the fact of the matter is, the Lord Jesus says, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to some of you are going to be thrown into prison. And you're going to suffer 10 days. There's much discussion. Why does he say 10 days? Now I'm going to blow your mind again. I, I think he means you're going to suffer some tribulation for, t- for 10 days. There, there are commentators that say, well, that, if you look in the historical period, that's being a historical period of the church where there are 10 phases of persecution. I don't know. I, fine, there may be some evidence for that, but you're going to have a hard time preaching that with authority. Here's what I do know, and some, one of the other authors I read made a very good point. When Daniel and his three friends said, we'll eat pulse, they said, we'll do it for 10 days. When God gave commandments, he gave 10 of them. 10 throughout the Bible is a number of judgment or of proving something out. God's law could be expressed in 10 commandments, proving out, and, and, it was, and you know how the 10 commandments were given? as a schoolmaster, to test and prove the sinfulness of man. And so here, the 10 days, it's more... You know what else you know about 10 days? It's not 11. (laughs) Meaning, you will have tribulation. It will be for a time, but it will end eventually. Don't fear it. Don't fear it. So I'm going to be cast into prison. You're going to have tribulation 10 days. He said, but be thou faithful unto death. Even if it costs you your life, you'll be faithful unto death. How could he say this? Because he's died and he's alive. He says, even death should not be feared. For the Christian, 
It is a doorway. It is not an eternal... It's not a destination. Death for the believer is not a destination. It's a passage. It's a shadow. It's a valley. The valley of the shadow of death. It's a shadow, meaning it's not, it's not the true thing. It's, it's a shadow cast on us. You pass through shadows. And uh, the fact of the matter is the Lord says, don't fear those things. Christian tonight, we must overcome fear. For God hath not... I was talking to my wife about this today. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And as your pastor, I want to challenge this church. I believe I'm your pastor. This church has got to overcome the spirit of fear. If we're going to go forward, you don't fear sending your kids off to a foreign country. And I've got to preach to me on this. There's some dangerous places. We can't fear that. Some will never step foot on a mission field because of fear. God did not give us that. So we don't have to fear. If we go, we won't suffer. That's not what he said. He said, don't fear what you're going to suffer. Amen? That's what he said. So he wants us to, how can we not fear? We know the one who's conquered it. He's overcome it. We can stand here today and laud Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and the three other men that died with them. But you know what, you know what moved those men? They knew the prospect of death was real. But they also knew what God had called them to do. And they were willing to die to obey God. And they did. And today the Aka Indians have the gospel. And the men that killed them got saved. You know what? Death didn't win. Life won. God gives us snapshots of that to realize Christ is on the throne. Christ being on the throne doesn't mean there won't be suffering. It means we overcome the suffering and the fear of death through confidence in his life. Amen? And so then tonight his counsel is, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And finally, in verse 11, his consolation. And he's already given them some consolation. He gives them the promise of the crown of life. He says, if you'll be faithful, I'll give you the crown of life for your faithfulness. Verse 11, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So if you want to hear what I have to say, and you've got an ear to hear me, i got something else to say. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. The second death is the lake of fire. Now remember, let's be reminded, who are the overcomers? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. That's Revelation twelve eleven. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh this world. The, true, the truly born again person knows that what's being preached tonight is true. He is living. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's a fact that Christ is living And our confidence in his life gives us fear over death, enabling us to serve and enabling us to be faithful. And so then he that overcometh by faith in Jesus Christ uh, will not be hurt of the second death. The person that has been born again, that has Christ as their Savior, need not fear the second death because the whole theme of this is I am he that was dead and am alive. When the one who is life is in you, the second death cannot touch you. Meaning, for the believer, we'll only know the one death, and that is the departure of our soul from our body. And you know what that says? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You realize saying the worst thing the world can do to me is kill me is not rhetoric. It's fact. Let us not live our lives out of the fear of what may happen. Let's live in the confidence of what we know has happened. They killed him and he's alive forevermore. 
And if they kill us, we're just going to be alive with them there, not here. <laughs> that ought to embolden us as Christians to say, you know what, I'm not going to fear what man shall do unto me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Amen? Amen. I hope it's helpful to you tonight. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Let's go serve the Lord with what's left of this week, what's left of this day, and let's do so confident in Him, not fearing what might happen to us because we know who we serve. Him that, he that was dead and is alive. Mm-hmm.